0: Explore the night skies with our large range of high-quality telescopes. Whether you're a novice or an astronomy expert, we have the right telescope for you in our Australian Geographic e-store. Explore the whole range and find the right telescope for you today. Go to australiangeographic.com.au forward slash shop. That's australiangeographic.com.au forward slash shop. I'm Chrissy Goldrick, and this is Talking Australia, a podcast by Australian Geographic. Today, I'm talking to Andrew Tink. Andrew is an author and a former member of the New South Wales Parliament. We'll be talking about his recent publication, Honeysuckle Creek, the story of Tom Reid, A Little Dish, and Neil Armstrong's First Steps. This book tells the true story of Australia's involvement in the 1969 Apollo 11 moon landings. So I'm really excited to be able to talk to Andrew today on this episode of Talking Australia. Welcome, Andrew.
1: Thanks, Chrissy. Thanks very much for having me.
0: Um, It was the 21st of July 1969 and uh, Neil Armstrong uttered those famous and unforgettable words as he uh, stepped down onto the moon. Take us back, Andrew, to your personal memories of that day and what you remember from it. You were now but a lad at the time.
1: (laughs) I was uh, 16 years old. Um, For the actual moon landing, which happened at 6.15am in the morning on the 21st of July Australian time, um, I was clustered around my kitchen radio with the rest of my family getting ready to go to school and we heard the audio of um, Tranquility Base here, the Eagle has landed. Uh, Then it was off to school um, and nobody quite knew uh, when the actual first step would be taken. It was originally scheduled for 4pm in the afternoon of 21st of July but um, the timetable changed at Armstrong's request. He was not going to sit around in the lunar module uh, trying to go to sleep um, for a number of hours, he wanted to come out straight away. And I remember at school um, this seesawing of the timetable going backwards and forwards and we kept going to our science auditorium to watch the TV then we'd be sent back to class and this went on a couple of times. And then finally um, it looked like uh, he was ready to uh, come out of the lunar module just on quarter to one and we were in the science auditorium again And uh, 316-year-old boys uh, fell silent, which is almost more of a miracle than landing on the moon, (laughs) and uh, we just watched Transfixed as um, Armstrong came down the ladder. The early images for the first minute or so were very bad and then there seemed to be sort of a switch almost and the image came good and uh, we saw Armstrong step onto the moon. Um, I didn't realise for many years uh, why the image changed, why one image was better than another and all that sort of thing, or that it was an Australian tracking station um, which brought Armstrong's first step to the world.
0: Now, that um, that whole... Uh, matter of the the role that Australia played in the Apollo moon landings and in fact in other uh, in other Apollo missions was perhaps not well known at all until the movie The Dish was made in the year two thousand. I, I think it was probably something that really passed most people by. Now I think after The Dish came out, it was just one of those great quirky Aussie movies that just seems to go gangbusters around the globe, and it and it, uh, and then Australia's role was was known, but. Tell me about your motivation to write the book because the the, the movie The Dish doesn't exactly tell the whole story of Australia's involvement in the moon landings.
1: Well, my motivation was um, I went to see the film The Dish in the year 2000 and saw Sam Neill playing Cliff Buxton, a fictitious character who was um, running the Parks Dish, walking towards the Parks Dish. That was the opening scene of the film. And I sat there thinking to myself, wrong place, wrong person. And then as the film went on, there was no reference to the tracking station at Honeysuckle Creek outside Canberra. And this irritated me quite a bit. Why? Because I knew the person who was director of Honeysuckle at the time of the moon landing. Uh, his name was Tom Reed, And um, I knew him because a couple of years after Apollo 11, I, I, I dated his uh, elder daughter, Mark. Uh, Tom was a very self-effacing Glaswegian. But I did know enough and there were a couple of certificates and things like that around the house um, that led me to conclude that he played an important role but he'd never tell me about it. So I saw Marg at a function um, after the dish was um, um, released and I said, has your dad seen the dish? And she said, no, he refuses to watch it because he's been told it's full of errors. And there the matter rested for a number of years until after his death... Uh, he would not have let me write this book or he wouldn't have done it with I um, oh, – wouldn't have allowed me to do it with any of his support. Um, he was that sort of guy. But after his death, I was looking around for a story to write and uh, I started to get into this one. And um, it's just amazing. Um, the, the end result of it is that it was Honeysuckle Creek outside Canberra that televised to a record worldwide audience of 600 million people Armstrong's first step. It was not Parks. Um, The moon didn't rise over the park's dish um, until some minutes after um, Armstrong started climbing down the ladder. And due to a series of um, uh, coincidental problems, um, it was left to Honeysuckle to um, bring that moment to the world. Uh, The big dish at Goldstone in California also had a signal, uh, but the technician there, due to a, a number of difficulties... Uh, was unable to get a broadcast quality signal. And so in the last 30 seconds as Armstrong was literally on the footpad of the lunar module, just about to step off, they switched um, their video feed to Honeysuckle.
0: Just wind us back a little bit to how we got to the stage in the first place where Australia was going to be playing that kind of important role in in that moment. What was the system, what was the communication system that that, that they were actually part of?
1: The, The basic issue was that during an Apollo mission, which usually lasted for about seven days, the moon would be relatively static in the sky, but the earth would spin on its axis once every 24 hours. Now, mission control was adamant about ensuring that constant communication be maintained between Houston and the astronauts on the moon, Um, and the only way to do that with the Earth spinning was to have three tracking stations placed equidistantly around the world. So there was one at Goldston in California, one at Madrid in Spain, and one uh, at Honeysuckle near Canberra. And between the three of them, they could swap the signal, sometimes overlapping, but the key thing was they could keep up constant radio communication, uh, except when, in the case of the command module, it was on the far side of the moon, and uh, what 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 was carried up and down, uh, transmitted up by these stations and and received from them and then fed back to Houston was voice. Um, so the mission controller in Houston could speak really almost in real time with the astronauts. Um, the radio waves travelled 186,000 miles a second, 250,000 miles to the to the moon. It was almost a real conversation. Um, ranging code, which is a fancy description of um, you know, um, a a, a system to determine where the astronauts were at any particular time. And also coming on the downlink telemetry, again, fancy word for data relating to things like the astronauts' heartbeats, their respiration rates, all their vital signs, plus all the vital signs relating to the equipment, so fuel levels in the lunar module and um, temperature gauges, all that sort of stuff. That that stuff could also be fed back to mission control.
0: Right, and that was fed back through... Uh, places like Honeysuckle, as you say, and Goldstone and Madrid, and so those were particularly like that. They are tracking stations as opposed to radio telescopes. That's
1: right. A tracking station had an uplink; it could transmit stuff, very powerful transmitter. You had to stand well back when it was transmitting, otherwise you could get seriously ill. And it had a receiver which was powerful enough to pick up the very faint signals generated by the tiny onboard computers and transmitters and stuff that you know were, were in the lunar module. Um, I mean, put it this way people will see a lot of footage of mission controllers at one end and astronauts on the moon at the other over the next few days. They would have been respectively deaf, dumb, and blind to each other but for these three tracking stations. Mm-hmm. The tracking stations were as vital to a moon mission as a Saturn V rocket lifted them off the earth. Mm. No mission could begin unless every station was in a state of green light readiness.
0: So, so does that mean that NASA built Honeysuckle Creek in the first place yeah. when they were planning the, 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 the whole Apollo yeah, and
1: it, it, it does. Um, NASA did build Honeysuckle Creek and, indeed, thanks to American taxpayers, there's a wonderful sealed road right <laughs> up into the um, ACT high country. It's just magnificent country for bushwalking and every other thing, uh, wildlife, wildlife. Um, and it's there thanks to American taxpayers.
0: And it was quite a, a, an interesting ride out from Canberra out there. If the weather wasn't good or the road washed out, there was a, a rockfall. So sometimes they weren't even guaranteed to be able to get there. That's exactly right. Um,
1: at the, the top of the dish um, when, you know, being used was 3,800 feet above sea level and in, in the high country. And that meant that um, sometimes during missions in uh, midwinter, um, the dish would get so full of snow that they'd have to break track and dump, it, dump the snow. Right. Um, <laughs> and this, this happened a couple of times. Um, in, in Houston, Texas, especially for Apollo 11, it was midsummer of course, and um, Tom Reed and his colleagues found it very difficult to convince Mission Control at various times <laughs> in sultry Houston <laughs> sorry, we're going to have to break track to dump snow. What? <laughs> what?
0: <laughs> now, was that, um, it was obviously chosen for its elevation, but was it chosen for its proximity to Canberra as well? Yeah.
1: Tom's NASA career began in Woomera, and Woomera is a very good site for tracking. Problem was that people, especially from Britain, and there are a lot of British uh, engineers and so forth who who worked these systems, would would fly out to Woomera with their families and take one look out the window and say, I'm not even getting off the plane, we're going (laughs) home. So a lifestyle environment became important. The two other things that were needed were a nearby university of some consequence and also a light industrial area. And Canberra, which was then Prime Minister Menzies' pet project, fitted the bill. It was a very pleasant place to live, a a, a small city but of of some size, a lot bigger than Woomera, obviously. It had the Australian National University and had a light industrial area at Fishwick where, you know, the gear coming off these massive planes that the Americans used to fly into Canberra Airport uh, could be constructed in parts at Fishwick and then trucked up the site. So that was why Canberra was chosen. As to the particular site, they needed somewhere which... um, was um, in a radio, otherwise radio-free area and there are a series of valleys and ridges out the back of Canberra where at one point there were three separate tracking stations which each being in a different area geologically um, would, would not suffer from radio interference. One of the great ironies of Honeysuckle is that even though it brought the TV of Armstrong's first step to the world, you couldn't actually get TV reception up there. Right. Um, and and today, even today, I mean, if you go up there, um, no mobile phone will work. Mm. Um, it is very, very remote uh, country.
0: It's ironic—you can't get a signal on your phone, but you could have spoken to someone on the moon and oh, seen wonderful. them
1: um, if you're <laughs> if you're in front of the right monitor. Yeah,
0: yeah. So that was um, uh, Tom Reed uh, was part of the team that He was the lead, the team leader. So um, now. What I've read and what I read in your book is that um, all of the staff there had to be Australians. There were no NASA people employed there, whereas that wasn't the case, say, in Madrid. So how did that come about?
1: Uh, It was Australian government policy that only Australian citizens or Australian residents, and Tom was a Glaswegian, he was an Australian resident and he settled here, could be employed at uh, an Australian tracking station in Madrid in Spain... Americans held most of the key posts and, of course, at Gulston in California they held all of the posts. This created a problem. There wasn't a huge pool of available people here and the first director uh, of Honeysuckle, a very bright, personable guy, just could not um, meld together a team of engineers and um, technicians. And so with time running short, um, there was a search on to find somebody And Tom Reid, who had a background in the Australian Navy and also the Royal Navy, was an electrical engineer with a first-class honours degree, et cetera, et cetera, who knew from his time as a junior officer how how to handle technical ratings, um, uh, petty officers and so forth. Um, He was brought in and he took the station from being the worst station in the network to the best station in the network in about four months by sacking a hell of a lot of people. Who were engineers? His view was just because you got a degree doesn't mean you know anything about tracking, and bringing in some technicians, many of whom had only rudimentary educations, but had got their education in the navy. Basically, were very bright, whippy people, calm in a crisis, all would that they, stuff. Would
0: they have served in the Second World War? Uh,
1: no. Well, Tom served right at the end of the Second World War. He didn't ever see any active service because he was being trained up as a specialist, um, you, you know, technician. Um, But but he did join the Royal Navy right at the end of the war. He was one of the older ones. Um, He was 42 at the time of Apollo 11 and he would have been one of the oldest people probably anywhere in the Apollo program who had an active role as distinct from, you know, a supervisory role at a high level. Mm. Um, So the answer is no. Most of the people who worked in Apollo with a service background Um, had um, a career um, in the Korean War mainly, if they had a a service career. Mm, mm. And and some of them, the very later ones, might have been in in the United States case in the beginnings of the Vietnam War.
0: We'll take a quick break and be back in a moment. We have a special offer for all our listeners. Subscribe to our AG magazine for six months for just $30 and save 33% on the newsstand price. That's three issues of our award-winning magazine delivered to your home for just $30. Plus, you'll receive exclusive benefits, including 10% off all our products purchased in our e-store. So don't wait. Go to australiangeographic.com.au forward slash Talking Australia for our special offer. That's australiangeographic.com.au forward slash Talking Australia. Tell us about Tom because he comes across in your book as a, a fascinating character and you do tell all about his history and growing up in Glasgow and he was a real bright spark right from the get-go and uh, uh, coming to Australia must have been, you know, quite a big upheaval for him And uh, but to be able to get here and, and come and, and then take on something like this and really make his mark but still always remain so self-effacing and so humble. Tell us about how he struck you when you uh, first met him.
1: Well, um, I was dating his elder daughter, so that always puts me spin <laughs> Under on the ball. pressure. <laughs> but um, look, he was always exceptionally nice to me, and uh, we got on well, but he would refuse to talk about his work. That was one of the hallmarks of the man. Um, and my sense of it was that um, he was just very, very modest and just wanted to get the job done. Um, but he was a perfectionist, and he demanded nothing but the best. Uh, and they used to have a stopwatch out sometimes, timing people doing things, all this sort of stuff. And um, so he he demanded and, and got perfection. And if people didn't measure up, I don't think in his eyes it meant that they were no good. It just meant that they were not a, not a correct fit for a tracking station. I've asked some of the surviving guys what would be the nearest sort of job that would have a skill set similar to a... A tracking station, and they pretty much all said, um, an air traffic controller at the busiest airport in the world on a Friday afternoon before a public holiday, <laughs> and it's just just this incredible dexterity, shuffling, uh, knowledge of the system being so ingrained in the mind that you know you didn't have to look stuff up. Manuals all over the place, but you, you just you just knew what to do instinctively, and you could. Do it instinctively. That that was the key. And a lot of very bright people, even in engineering, are, are not up to that. So that, that was the skill that was required. And he was
0: able to kind of, you know, identify that quite quickly in people. Well,
1: he he got rid of a whole lot of engineers and um, appointed naval technicians.
0: And he built his own team around him. And
1: NASA came out and said, what are you doing, Tom? We have engineers in all those positions. And he said, trust me, I know what I'm doing. Um, just let me get on with it. If you've got confidence in me, just let me get on with it. And, um, you know, within three months after he took over, the tracking station went from being the worst in the network to the best. And, uh, you know, they, they performed exceptionally. The um, director of flight operations for Apollo 11, who was really the head honcho, um, said a couple of years later, his name was... Magnificently named Christopher Columbus Craft, Jr. I'm not kidding.
0: <laughs> it's a wonderful Director name. Director <laughs> of
1: flight operations for Apollo 11. And he said a couple of years later, looking back, especially on Apollo 11, the name Honeysuckle Creek and the excellence which is implied by that name will always be remembered and recorded in the annals of man's spaceflight. Now, coming from Craft, that's a pretty big compliment. He wasn't... Um, no, I'm handing them out very readily and that was the beauty.
0: Yeah, that sounds wonderful. So so going back to those days when you knew Tom, uh, at that stage the, the, the role that Australia played in, in the moon landings probably wasn't terribly well known and was it not well known to you? Is that just something that you discovered or is it... Because well, you were living in Canberra at the time. I, I was you? an
1: ANU student at the law school as was Tom's elder daughter who I dated. Um That was 1972, towards the end of the year when I first met him. And back then, um, for those who watched it like I did at at my school science auditorium, we had a pretty strong memory back then of, of, of what we'd seen and it was generally accepted around the place that Honeysuckle had got the footage of Armstrong stepping onto the moon. And most of the newspapers of the day said that. Uh, you know, back in 1969, um, it all sort of changed in the year 2000 when The Dish came out and um, it, it was a bit of a paradox. I mean, The Dish was exceptionally popular so it sort of put space tracking on the public map um, but, you know, it, it contained some huge errors and um, I uh, Parks did very important work in the sense that when its dish came online, it was the TV feed from Parks of Armstrong and Aldrin walking around on the moon that was sent to the world. Um, but it, the dish was not online and not able to send broadcast quality pictures at the time Armstrong stepped foot on the moon, and it was Honeysuckle, when Goldstone mucked things up, th- that was able to do that. So, you know, Honeysuckle got the key moment. And, and Parks, being a, a, um, a radio telescope, couldn't transmit anything. It was a receiver. Why did Parks persevere over Honeysuckle when Parks came online? Well, the answer is very simple. Parks has a massive 210-foot diameter dish. The Honeysuckle dish was 85 feet in diameter and I guess like everybody who has Foxtel or whatever knows, um, the bigger the dish you can afford, the better the signal, generally speaking. It was no different with tracking stations and radios, telescopes and such.
0: So that was uh, – Honeysuckle took the, the – actually transmitted about the first seven minutes or so, was it? <coughs>
1: um, they started it off with Goldstone. The decision was to be made by a fellow called Ed Tarkington who was known as Houston TV. Uh, he was in a room right next to the Mission Control, the main room, and he had big monitors up in front of him and he could see the feed coming in from Goldstone. He could see the feed coming in from Honeysuckle, thinking – The bigger the dish, the better the image. They persevered with Goldstone for a couple of minutes um, but it wasn't getting any better. The technician had made a fundamental mistake and that was he'd uh, forgotten to flip his reversing switch. What's that? Well, the lunar TV camera could only be mounted in one way and that was upside down because of space constraints. When Armstrong came down the ladder, he pulled on a lanyard Uh, the little camera would pop out and down from a tool locker, an external tool locker, and start filming. But for space reasons, that's to say, um, you know, location reasons, it filmed upside down. So on the um, uh, TV monitoring panels at each of the tracking stations, there was a reversing switch worth about five cents in a hardware store back in the day. (laughs) But the technicians had to remember to flick the reversing switch to turn the upside down picture the right way up. Well, Honeysuckle got it right. A fellow called Ed von Renoir, their TV technician, got it right. He flicked his switch. The guy at Goldstone, who to this day I understand remains anonymous, <laughs> forgot to flick his switch, panicked, um, you know, tried a whole lot of other bits and pieces so that when he finally did flick his reversing switch, um, the rest of the picture was terrible. Um, and, and I'm not joking. For the first um, probably 45 seconds, Armstrong was coming down the ladder um upside down. So you look at the screen, his head's at the the bottom of the screen, his feet are at the top, Mm. and he's sort of going sort of backwards from bottom to top of screen. It was ridiculous. Um, And... um, Anyway, um, Honeysuckle got it right.
0: Yeah, and it was an unscheduled time, wasn't it, because actually they went for the moonwalk early that day, so it was due to be done. They would you to take a sleep or have a little rest for six hours before they came out.
1: The Apollo 11 flight plan was 364 pages long. It had been signed off by everybody on the 1st of July. Uh, it... it, it um, provided for a 6.15am lunar landing on the 21st of July and that happened and it provided for a moon walk, and Armstrong's first step, at 4pm on that same day where Parks would be the main TV receiver. Um, Armstrong and Aldrin landed. They pretty quickly decided they were not going to, lie around for what was called a rest period um, for all that length of time and they got on to mission control and said, look, we want to come out as soon as possible. Mission control had no bargaining power at that point. Armstrong and Alder could do what they liked basically and uh, so they said – they bowed to the inevitable and said, okay, and this threw the timeline into chaos um, and a few other things besides – It looked like they were going to come out at 11am. I remember this. We were going backwards and forwards to the science auditorium Mm. from class, backwards and forwards. And um, then they took longer to suit up than they expected. You know, going out into space without a properly fitting space suit is a terrible death, basically. And it wasn't until um, about 12.45pm that Armstrong crawled backwards across a metal platform towards the ladder, and he took his first step at 12.56. So this, was a, this turned out to be a movable feast pretty much right throughout the day. And it was serendipitous that at that time that he was coming down the ladder, Goldstone still had a picture. It wasn't planned that way. Um, it was planned that Honeysuckle would have a picture, but only as a backup to Parks. But at that time, the Parks dish could still not get a signal. And that's why it all at the end of the day fell to Honeysuckle. And when it was all over, plus a whole lot of other coincidences that, coincidence that led to this point, um, you know, Tom Reed said at an anniversary later on um, it hadn't been planned that way but that's the way it was and, God damn it, we were ready. And it sort of summed up the whole, you know, situation.
0: And uh, is that because he had basically done a lot of practice runs, is this just something that they'd gone over and over and over again, what would happen?
1: Yes, they um, they trained relentlessly and Ed von Renoir at Honeysuckle had in fact been an ABC TV technician. And so he knew something about um, the technology from a commercial aspect. Initially, for the first split second, he was as confused as everybody else about what he was seeing on the TV monitor. There was Being on the moon, there were these incredible contrasts of light and darkness, things like that, you know, very... Um, big shadows and 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 so it took him a second or so, but he but he nailed it within about two or three seconds. The Goldstone guy at least down until, you know well after Armstrong stepped onto the moon they they just did not get it over there unfortunately, mm. but one thing about NASA was always um, and it's a basic sort of principle of engineering i think back up, back up back up, back up mm. you know if you say the tensile strength of the steel on the Harbour Bridge should be X multiplied by 10. Um, And so there were these multiple backup systems and for one reason or another around the TV of the Moonwalk, um, the other systems didn't work and um, um, Honeysuckle was the final backup. Mm. Uh, If Honeysuckle hadn't worked, um, the moment would have been lost live to that massive TV audience. But But it did work. And, and Tom had, you know, drummed his team relentlessly and, and they were able to nail it.
0: Honeysuckle um, closed down after the, the end of the Apollo uh, program. Is that, is that what happened? Because it's uh, not there now, is it?
1: Honeysuckle went on for a little while uh, to 1981. It remained in place with the operations room up the, up the mountain and they acted as a wing station for uh, Tidbin Biller for deep space tracking after the Apollo program was over. But by 1981, um, NASA was doing a major sort of cost reduction program and they couldn't justify having this place right out in the bush in the high country. So it was closed down. The dish was dismantled, brought down to the Tidbin Builder Tracking Station and rebuilt where it remained in operation for the next 25 years. And people can see it today. It's no longer working, but it's right there beside the right. visitor's car park. Okay. It's the first dish you come across, mm-hmm. uh, the little dishes in a stowed position. <coughs> Excuse me. And um, NASA recognises that this is a really critical um, historic landmark and so they you know, keep keep the maintenance up just, just to keep it standing. At Honeysuckle now, um, there's nothing, um, just some concrete foot pads and things like that. But it's a beautiful place to see wildlife and have a picnic and you can get up there easily thanks to American taxpayers.
0: <laughs> very good. And um, so, Andrew, just listening to you talk about the sort of technical side of um, the uplinks, the downlinks and, and the telecommunications, massively sophisticated, I think in your book you do such a wonderful job to demystify it and actually to make it very sort of accessible. How? And this isn't your own background. You're not an engineering background. So tell us a little bit how you came to, to write the book and what your background is.
1: Well, I'm I'm one of those horrible people called the lawyer politician by background and um, I had pretty mediocre writing skills um, until when I was a shadow minister, I had to um, get the press gallery to take an interest in my press releases and so I got a pretty fast introduction to how to write properly from um, journalists who would refuse to read my stuff and curl it up into a little ball and throw it at the nearest bin. <laughs> and they taught me the importance of words, you know, using words in proper context and um, putting a most important point forward first in a press release at any, any event and, um, you know, keeping it simple and making it flow and encouraging the reader to sort of keep reading really. And that was the trick. And it took me a while to learn that but I became fascinated by the process And after some pretty bad health issues um, uh, and just exhaustion, I I ran pretty hard in Parliament, just exhausted. I had to get out and um, I wanted to do something really different and so I started writing. Um, Now, as to Honeysuckle Creek, my other books are in areas that I'm much more comfortable with, you know, biographies of long-dead politicians and, 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 you know, books with a little bit of a political flavour to them but mainly historical Uh, So to get in, and I was comfortable with all that, but to get into this Honeysuckle Creek tracking station story, um, I was way out of my depth and um, I just had to learn it. So NASA has a wonderful history series and I I got the relevant books in relation to that, started trying to learn various things and then spoke to a number of the tracking station personnel that were still alive. Um, That was really hard, lovely people, but... They talk very, still very bright and on the ball. They talk incredibly fast. They talk in jargon. They use acronyms and, you know, <laughs> I, it was really hard slog. But I knew that if I could understand it because I knew nothing about any of the detail, I might have a ghost of a chance of writing something that, you know, a general reader might read and that was the goal in the end um, to, to to, you know, write stuff in a way that would be a reasonable read for people and um, the book seems to have gone well and I'm, I'm, I'm pleased about that because I think the story, whether I've told it well is another matter but the actual story is fascinating and I thought it deserved to be told and, you know... I. Was, Really going to try hard to do it. So.
0: Well, I think it's wonderful. I think it's wonderful that you've told it in this book. And what's also really special about it, along with the demystifying of all that technical stuff, and I actually found it very compelling. All of that. You, you uh,
1: can't pay me a nicer <laughs> compliment, Chrissy. I can, you, you I, can. Can't.
0: I just. I found myself kind of talking in the same sort of language about uplinks and downlinks, and you know the difference between being able to send a signal back up and communicate, and only just accepting a signal down is, you know, a huge difference between. Anyway, I was. I can't believe I, even I was talking like that. So thank you to you for, for that. And as a result of reading your book, we decided that we would do a story to commemorate the 50th anniversary of the Apollo moon landing's Based on your book, because I think you know we felt this was an untold story and that that, that we need to set the record straight. So um, there is a story in the July edition of Australian Geographic that Andrew has written for us a, a, about Tom Reid and about Honeysuckle Creek, and um, it's just a different a, just a different side. And I think Australians would be very proud, really, to know about the, the role that Australia played in something that really people are talking about all over the world now. I mean, I think at the time it was momentous, and I was alive then. I remember it as well we I think I might have been in bed asleep when it actually happened but you wouldn't know the difference in those days whether something was live on tv or whether it was being relayed but I do remember it uh, very clearly and um, again being a little bit mystified myself at that age about what was really happening so it it, it is great it's very accessible but I think the personal connection with Tom Reed is really an important part of what what makes the book work so well because you knew him and so talking about all those technical things with a number of different cast characters is one thing, but actually finding this person in the midst of it that was this sort of ocean of calm and cleverness and, and technical know-how and, and that the, the, the Americans, the NASA people really admired that and really felt Australia made a a remarkable contribution to something that was really... And you don't really know at the time, people could have been going to the moon every year since then, do you know what I mean? It might have been... but it, Really, people haven't been back to the moon very much since those days and over time the the narrative has really changed and it's become this really momentous event in the whole of human history. Well,
1: well, it has because uh, when Armstrong stepped onto the moon, that was the first time that a human being had stepped onto a celestial body. Now, human beings will probably step onto celestial bodies into the future many, many times, but there'll only ever be one first and that was the first. And uh, as a 16-year-old, you know, it was kind of like the world stopped to watch. I mean, the people who are... See, in New York, when Armstrong stepped onto the moon, it was about 10.56pm on the 20th of July. And it was a sultry summer's evening in Central Park. There's a photo of this in the book. Um, and there's this massive crowd in Central Park watching a huge TV monitor set up by the CBS network and what they were watching was the video feed coming by a honeysuckle. And to look at the crowd you could see, mainly a young crowd actually, but you could see conservative people, you could see hippies, you could see, and that was at the height of the Vietnam War when America was tearing itself apart, right? The amazing thing about this photo... It's just everybody, it's not a photo of the TV screen, it's a photo of the crowd and their faces are just filled with wonder and ecstasy. I mean, but it, this sounds like a huge exaggeration, but it, it's true when you look at the photos. So it was just an extraordinary unifying moment. Um, people say to me now, oh, you know, well, it was all a hoax, and I say, well, because I was a barrister once, if I had to go to court and... Um, prove that the moonwalk happened, uh, that they landed on the moon, my first witnesses would be the trackers from Honeysuckle Creek. They knew <laughs> where these guys were, they had the signals going up, they had the signals coming back. Um, they are the key witnesses to this event actually happening. And the other thing is, in that context, Tom was an absolute perfectionist. But he was no sort of slavish follower of the United States. He wasn't, you know, somebody who banged the American drum. Um, he was a little bit, you know, questioning about all that. But what he was was just a relentless professional, uh, an engineer, a Glasgow engineer. And as I've come to realise there's something about Glasgow engineers, <laughs> pardon me, there is no BS, right? to get exactly, in, yeah. get the job done, yes. right? And... and, and th- that's why he and his colleagues, um, I ha- and come to know them very well, they're very good friends. There's just no question that this thing happened and I'd be very confident of putting him in front of any jury uh, where the question was, did the moon landing happen?
0: Well, I'm really so happy to hear you say that because it's just a conversation I- I'm never even interested in having. We had uh, Buzz Aldrin come out to visit us about 10 years ago. He came out to the Australian Geographic Awards to, to uh, present an award. And um, we had a press conference and, and whatever, and people were asking all these different questions, and somebody did ask that question in the press conference. And he's used to dealing with it. He's used to sort of parrying that question. So, Andrew, what's next for you in terms of, uh, of your next book? What are, you, what are you looking at for next? Your next delve deep into a subject?
1: Well, Christy, the honest answer is I've got no idea. (laughs) It's not that I'm not thinking about it. It's just that no story has um, grabbed me sufficiently to proceed. Um, My sort of benchmarks are I like to do something that will be commercially publishable as a book and I like to try and do something where the story hasn't been told yet.
0: Well, it's good, it's good that you don't know, the, almost that you don't know the next one because it's, it's out there somewhere, isn't it?
1: Well, I don't know. <laughs> It'll
0: find you, I'm sure. And, I, 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 and in the meantime, I think you're going to find yourself quite busy over the next few days and few weeks talking I, about I, Apollo 11 and Honeysuckle Creek. And I think it's really, and it's great and it's important. And, and I think at the end of the day, people will know a little a little more and a lot more about Australia's contribution to that amazing event back in 1969. So it's been a great pleasure having you on Talking Australia this morning. Andrew and, and thank you very much for your time pleasure thanks Christy. that's it for today's episode of Talking Australia with Andrew Tink if you have questions or comments feel free to reach out write us an email podcast at australiangeographic.com or find us on Instagram at Australian Geographic. And if you go to australiangeographic.com.au forward slash Talking Australia, you'll find special offers for our listeners, including 10% off all products purchased in our e-store. So don't wait and go to australiangeographic.com.au forward slash Talking Australia. Also, make sure to subscribe to the podcast on iTunes, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts from, so you never miss an episode.